Hello, and welcome to the Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe, a podcast for artists and storytellers about changing the world for the better through story. Last week, we talked about some of the consistent problems that I've been seeing in student and professional work that has been turned into me for evaluation. Namely, that we are creating some very selfish, passive characters in our projects because, I would argue, we have naturally begun to create anti-heroes and have lost an ability in some ways to tell the difference between, say, a classic protagonist or an anti-heroic character. And depending on what type of story you're telling, your story has different dramatic needs that need to be fulfilled. Today, we're going to look at some case studies of mistakes that people have made, of mistakes people maybe haven't made because they've done it on purpose. But whatever the case, we're looking at stories that have ended up being harmful in some way to us as a culture or society. So I want to look at some of the examples and see how this works in a practical way So you can see how it plays out. What is the logical conclusion? How can you avoid doing the same thing? So the ultimate question here is what happens when writers don't have a clear moral worldview or when they fail to have a clear protagonist versus an anti-hero at the center? What are the practical implications of that? Well, I was talking with one of our team members, Gustav, about this very thing. And he brought up the film Fight Club, who has at its center one of the preeminent anti-heroes of our day, Tyler Durden. Now, if you haven't seen Fight Club, here's what it's about. It's basically, it's a film from 1999 that was directed by David Fincher, starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton and Helena Bonham Carter. And it's based on the novel by the same name by Chuck Palahniuk. Now, in this film, Norton plays the unnamed narrator who's dissatisfied with his life. He's not happy. He's got a white-collar job, but he's just really, really unhappy in life. And over the course of the story, he ends up forming a fight club with Tyler Durden, who's played by Brad Pitt. He meets Tyler Durden on a plane, and eventually the two of them launch this fight club. Now, I should say, I should clarify here that what we're about to talk about is based on the film because I haven't read the book, although I understand that the book also seems to represent a pretty hopeless worldview. But I can't speak to that because I myself have not read it. So we're only talking about the film here. But what I can say is that as Gus and I were discussing it, he told me that it was one of the most pivotal and important films of his emerging adulthood. It informed him deeply. It was so pivotal in his development as a young man that he adopted it hook, line, and sinker. He took in the philosophy of Fight Club and it actually played itself out in his real life. And the reason that is a problem is because ultimately it represented a completely cynical moral worldview. 
Keep in mind, one of the reasons why Fight Club so resonated with men, and particularly men of this particular generation, is because it challenged conventional society. It challenged the status quo. It said, this is not where we actually find happiness. Nothing here is real. And it also tapped into a deep-seated need of men to reclaim some sort of lost masculinity. In a world where men have systematically become feminized, it challenged the construct. In a way, it's much like The Matrix, because Matrix, at its core, was a movie about the nature of reality. It was saying, hey, whatever you think is real, this isn't. This is not real. So Fight Club was doing sort of the same thing, calling attention to a much bigger world that was beyond our normal senses, beyond the norm. In some ways, it's very Christian because it's saying there's way more to this world than we know or what we've bought into. However, we're going around like big blind automatons. We're not paying attention, but there's so much more for us. And don't we as Christians believe that there is a spiritual realm, that there is more going on in this world than just what we can see, touch, hear, smell, and taste, than what we're sold There is more to this world than what can even be tested through the scientific process. Okay, so both films are challenging the construct. Both films are tapping into something incredibly poignant and relevant at this particular time of history, which is this underlying knowledge that there must be more than this. This can't be all there is. We're lost. We've lost our way. Now, of course, Matrix deals with this in one particular way, where you have an actual superhero in the making. Neo becomes the one, and he has to become the one who can defeat the machines. So, at the end, he's basically Superman. Whereas Fight Club does not bring in a, quote, superhero. Fight Club brings in the anti-hero and grapples with a very legitimate and relevant struggle through one particular guy, a normal, average guy. He is not heroic. He's an anti-hero. Now, it's worth noting that David Fincher called the unnamed narrator the everyman. He described him as being a character who's tried to do everything he was taught to do. He tried to fit into the world by becoming the thing he isn't, but he cannot find happiness. So, according to Fincher, he travels on a path to enlightenment in which he must kill his parents, his God, and his teacher. By the start of the film, he has killed off his parents, and with Tyler Durden, he kills his God by doing things that they are not supposed to do. And then to complete the process of maturing, the narrator has to kill his teacher, who is Tyler Durden himself. So to Fincher, this was a coming-of-age film, much like The Graduate. But the truth is he's different than The Graduate archetype because the unnamed narrator is a guy who does not have a world of possibilities in front of him. He has no possibilities. He literally cannot imagine a way to change his life. He is confused and angry and trapped. So he responds to his environment by creating Tyler Durden. Although he doesn't know until the end that Tyler Durden is actually a projection of himself. So Tyler is who the narrator wants to be. And he is not empathetic. 
and he does not help the narrator face decisions in this life that are complicated and have moral and ethical implications. As Fincher explained, Tyler can deal with the concepts of our lives in an idealistic fashion, but it doesn't have anything to do with the compromises of real life as modern man knows it, which is, you're not really necessary to a lot of what's going on. It's built. It just needs to run now. In other words, what Fincher is saying is that the construct is there. It's already in existence, and this is a hopeless world for this character. He has no possibility of breaking out of the system, of the construct. It's just going. It's in motion, and this guy is caught up in the cogs. He's in the wheels. He cannot escape what is before him. And so here's this character who is struggling with insomnia and struggling in relationship with other people, struggling in romance. He cannot connect with others in a deep, emotional, and intimate way, and he feels dead. So what is the solution that the film offers? Well, one of the solutions that's offered in Fight Club, and by the way, what Fight Club is basically arguing is that since men have no outlet anymore, we're dead, all of us in society were basically dead. But fighting, actual bare knuckle fighting, mano a mano, can awaken the man within and remind us who we are. It makes us men again. It makes us alive. It gets us back to the day where we mattered, where it was about survival, hunting and gathering before we became part of the system. It was primal. It was life and death. And men had these rites of passage that they had to engage in to survive, but also so that their lives had purpose and meaning. Fights for life and death that men were created for. This kind of adrenaline, this kind of rush, this kind of purpose. For this kind of battle and even losing was no shame as long as you fought. So the characters in the story would start meeting in these fight clubs and they'd beat each other up. And it was a way to stay alive because they were all spiritually dying. They had lost their souls in the system. According to Wikipedia, Fight Club examines Generation X and the angst of that generation, the middle children of history. Edward Norton said that it examines the value system, the conflicts of Generation X as the first generation raised completely on television. And this generation had its value system largely dictated to it by advertising culture and was told that you could achieve spiritual happiness through home furnishing. And to highlight this, there's this wonderful scene in the film where the character walks through his apartment while visual effects identify his many Ikea possessions. So it was the idea of living in this fraudulent idea of happiness. Brad Pitt said that Fight Club is basically a metaphor for the need to push through the walls we put around ourselves and just go for it. So for the first time we can experience the pain but I think that's incorrect. I think that is downplaying what the film is actually saying because it's about a spiritual death, the true frustrations of people that live in the system, the characters having undergone societal emasculation are now reduced to being spectators. A culture of advertising that defines society's external signifiers of happiness and it causes an unnecessary chase 
for material goods that replaces the more essential pursuit of spiritual happiness. So in all of that, it seems to be very much in line with Christian values because we believe that too, right? We believe that it's not good to chase after material goods and that there is something far more essential, which is the pursuit of spiritual happiness. However, the real solution offered to this problem in Fight Club becomes violence. Violence becomes the solution. Now, the filmmakers will argue that the violence of the Fight Clubs doesn't serve to promote or glorify combat. Rather, it's for participants to experience feeling in a society where they are otherwise numb, which I get. However, the fact that the solution entails the destruction of self and others is cynical. That is not a great place to find life. The fights represent a resistance to the impulse to be cocooned in society. And there is something valuable about leaving behind their fear of pain or leaving behind their reliance on material possessions as signifiers of their own self-worth. That's true. We want that also. But the fights evolve into revolutionary violence. And the problem is, is that the film doesn't fully deal with all of the implications or repercussions of its worldview. The solution that's being offered is violence and violence as the solution becomes not enough. So Brad Pitt's character wants to take it further and actually become a revolutionary because it's not enough that individuals are finding awakening in these fight clubs. He wants to fight the system. He wants to blow it up and become a terrorist to fight the system by bringing the construct down and forcing the construct itself, not just to change, but to be reborn, to start over. So in many ways, it's a very legitimate struggle. The problem is that the solution, which sounds so much like truth, is littered with lies. It is littered with poison. So you might have some refreshing water in there, but if you have a glass full of really beautiful, clean water, and then you sprinkle in a little bit of cyanide, it's poison. And the water does you no good. It does not bring you life. It brings you death. And yet you take it into your system and whatever you take in ultimately comes back out. And that's what Fight Club did. Fight Club was poison to a whole generation of young men. So what are some of the things, what are some of the truths that Fight Club offered this generation of men? What were some of these truths that they swallowed, hook, lion, sinker, and believed in their core, and what were the consequences of it? Well, again, one of the primary things, as we've been talking in this series, is an ultimate adoption, a complete embracing of this worldview of cynicism. That in this world, nobody really cares. That in this world, you are stuck. The cogs are in motion. You have no options except destruction, to tear it all down. That there is no God that's going to intervene. That you have to take what you can, take what you can get, and that you have to make things happen for yourself because there is no ultimate cosmic perspective that you can rely on. And by the way, you know, it's okay. It's okay if you do it. You've got to do it. You've got to. It's not only okay to be fundamentally selfish, but it's essential. 
because nobody else is going to look out for you. You have to do it. And sometimes you have to do so violently. And sometimes you have to be so violent that you tear it all down and start over. Okay, so I just spent a lot of time on that particular film, but there are other films to look at. There are other stories. And by the way, they started in books and they ended in films. So let's talk about another one. What about No Country for Old Men? What is that story saying? Well, the basic premise is that it's no country for old men because this world is so dark, so evil, so corrupt. It's gotten so bad that the only possible release is death. That's the only hope. Our only hope is to die because it's just too dark of a world. It's no country for old men. And so what does the movie do then? Well, the whole movie reinforces this worldview that says there is no justice. There is no order. There is no design. It is random. We live in a world of random chaos. In fact, what does the bad guy do? He flips a coin. He decides whether or not to kill you depending on which way the coin lands. If it lands on heads, he does this. If it lands on tails, he does that. One way he kills you, the other he lets you live. And so therefore, it is not based on choice. He's not even making the choice. He is relinquished of responsibility because it isn't based in choice. It's according to chance. So he's even saying he doesn't have a choice. He's letting the random chaos decide for him. He's relinquished the power of choice, supposedly. But of course, he does have a choice. He has a choice whether or not to flip the coin in the first place. But in his mind, it's all random. It's all meaningless. And he'll flip the coin. And there is no ultimate purpose or reason for anything. There is no ultimate justice. Nothing is in ultimate control. There's no ultimate plan. It's just where the coin lands. Again, which also means he's ultimately not responsible for his actions, nor will he ever have to account for them. And guess what? All the way through the end of the movie, that idea is reinforced even to the point where he is driving away from something terrible that he has just done at the end of the movie, and he randomly gets hit by a car. It's random. Him getting hit by a car is random. But guess what? He doesn't die. He walks away from that, which means what? Well, it means that there is no justice in the universe. See, we might have been able to say, well, God will make it right in the end, If there's no justice to be had among the laws of man or among those that are tasked with bringing a man like this to justice, then God himself must intervene. So the car wreck could mean a cosmic interference. And it could mean that God has taken action when men were unable to do so. And yet, the fact that the bad guy just walks away, first of all, it was random that he got hit in the first place. And then second of all, he walks away from it. So what's the conclusion? That there is no justice. There is not a God in heaven who's going to institute any sort of cosmic justice. It's all meaningless. It's all random. It's all chance. It's all hopeless. It's all nihilism. It's cynicism. It means that personal choice 
doesn't matter. There are other films like this and books. For example, Cormac McCarthy's The Road is a hopeless worldview. There is no hope in that world. Even though there's this beautiful love between a father and a son, right? And that's what keeps us in it. We love their love for each other, but they're in a hopeless world. We are left with the impression at the end that it is hopeless. There is no hope for them that soon the father is going to die. And once the father's gone, the son will die shortly thereafter because he will have no protector. Therefore, it's a hopeless worldview. No matter what they do, they're doomed. And that is the key here. That is the key. In all three of these stories, this is the key, by the way, because I've argued before that as Christians, we can have hopeless endings because sometimes we have to damn our characters in order to redeem our audience. But what's the difference? Well, the difference is choice. The difference is, does the character have an ability to exercise personal freedom to choose something different than the damnation or the hopelessness that he is being served. If there is no choice, then it defies the Christian worldview and it is hopeless. It's nihilism. If there is a choice offered, but the character chooses poorly, that's okay. Because then we are at least testifying to the fact that we do have a choice. And sometimes people choose poorly. Nevertheless, we're arguing that we have an ability to influence our own outcome, our destiny. We have personal responsibility. We have agency that can be exercised. But if that is removed from us, then we are just cogs in a machine, hopeless cogs in a machine. And that is cynicism. And again, why is cynicism so bad? Well, once you remove the idea that we can influence or manifest our destiny through acts, through action, through choices that we make, you create a society of victims. You create a society of entitlement. You create a selfish society of cynics who no longer do anything good for good's sake because why would they? What's the point? It doesn't matter anyway. You lose meaning. Everything becomes meaningless because nothing you do matters. It is a slow and progressive deterioration into chaos and mutiny, to lawlessness, because there is no hope. And this is what cynicism does to our culture. And this is what we're facing right now. Think critically about the content that you're taking in and about the content that you're creating. And if I can be of service to you, please do check out the Storyteller's Mission website, www.thestorytellersmission.com. I have online classes, I offer coaching, and I offer critiques. And if you just want to sign up for the Storyteller's Digest, do that, that you'll get some extra content on occasion, and you'll find out about some of the important events coming up for this community. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining me today on The Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe. May you go forth inspired to change the world for the better through story.